0: A Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know how.
1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Lee Jenkins, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite writers on the planet, especially in the basketball world. We have a a really fun, wide-ranging conversation, including the Warriors, Kristaps Porzingis, LeBron, Russell Westbrook, and a lot more. There will be timestamps that you can see in case you're focused on a particular thing, but I think it's worth it to listen to the whole conversation, especially because things can run into one another, so it's not really easy transitions. But I absolutely love the conversation. It runs about an hour. Hope you enjoyed as much as I loved recording it. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm very intrigued to see what your process is for for like, let's say the the Grisostopouzis piece that just came out, which was excellent. How do you how do you start? I guess by picking the subject is probably first.
2: Well, in a lot of ways, it's kind of an obvious process because you see kind of who's emerging. It feels like the NBA is always spitting out players who, you know, feel like they're new stars. You sort of you can just. You, know, you can feel kind of a demand to know more about a certain player. You know whether they're. You know a lot of times you're just kind of monitoring who's emerging as a star, who's taking that next leap. You know into another kind of class of player, and then part of it is just looking for a player who would be a good story, who has a certain kind of tension in in his life, who's you know gone through something, something's happened to, where you can kind of see. Or sense that there might be a narrative arc, and, um, and sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way you thought it would, and you go off on another in another direction. I feel like whenever I'm trying to pick stories, I'm just kind of trusting my own curiosity. If I'm curious about a player, like a couple years ago, you know, Patrick Beverly was was kind of mucking it up with everybody and constantly getting into trouble and getting people's, you know, getting people irritated with him. And I, I was just interested in him. And that alone, a lot of times, will, will just make me want to go write about somebody. Sometimes The Office is a little reluctant on a player who's not a star, but usually those end up being some of my most gratifying stories.
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And I also think that's part of the benefit of going for somebody who's a, who's a little bit younger, like Porzingis, is that there weren't really many opportunities so far for American journalists to tell his story really well. And so to be able to get that early and to be able to have something kind of definitive out there, I think was probably exciting on that end.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was, listen, everybody was talking about him. There was, it felt like a craze. And if anything, I was on him, you know, maybe a little bit late. I probably should have gone out there and done it a bit earlier. But it, there was a lot being written about him, but I didn't feel like, you know, I really knew anything, like who he was. Now that, to me, is sort of the objective with all of these stories. Is There's so many people who are better than I am at, at telling the story of what they do and um, what guys do and putting it in perspective, their, you know, their basketball skills, their numbers, their games. You know, what I try to get at with a lot of these stories, because I am fortunate enough usually to have some time with the subjects, in real time, is to give a glimpse into who they are. And, you know, Porzingis was an interesting an interesting subject because usually when you take, you know, a guy who's really young from overseas, first year, the interview is kind of a challenge. It's hard to sort of really feel like you know that you, you you sort of feel like it's hard to kind of get to know the person or forge a connection, but Porzingis comes across as so American. I mean, you can just, you can tell he's watched a, a bunch of interviews. He sort of has that kind of cadence down. He understands sort of the importance of telling stories about his own life. He's already reflective. This class of rookies in general is pretty startling actually at kind of how savvy they are. Um, you know, because I've interviewed a bunch of them now, especially Russell Porzingis also. Towns definitely a bit. I haven't gotten to know Okafor at all. Winslow's a little quieter, but but he could get there too. So it's definitely as a class, it feels like it's going to be a good one as far as just NBA ambassadors and spokespeople.
1: And it's incredible with this class because it's also a younger group. This isn't one of those collections where, you know, you just happen to have a bunch of sophomores and juniors in college that stayed a little bit longer. Most of these guys are teenagers, and yet they still already have that savvy. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the interview that Towns did with Durant when he was a teenager, when he was a younger teenager. As opposed, And it's just incredible to see. I think part of it also is that these guys grew up in a time when the media has been kind of the omnipresent state that it, that it is now. So they, I think they came in with that understanding.
2: I think that's right. I think so much of what these guys do is visualize themselves in certain situations. And that's something Porzingis talked about a lot. Is he'd be sitting there in Spain with his YouTube, you know, just watching games, watching, things, watching NBA games, watching NBA highlights, and he would put himself in situations. He would visualize himself. On the floor with Chris Paul, or you know, on the floor guarding Durant, things like that, and he would, he would visualize it all, and I think that extends partly to some media interactions also, and and, and press conferences, how you want to sound, how you, you know, how you kind of want to come across. I felt like when I was talking to him, I was talking to somebody who had you know definitely kind of reviewed all of these things in his head, you know, going back to when he was young, and and what's amazing about him, Danny, is he's not one of these guys who oversees created some kind of craze. I mean, I think among scouts he probably did. You know, They were all interested in him, but he was really not famous over there. I mean, we're talking 2,000 people at a game, and that was on the high side. He'd be walking down the street. Nobody knew who he was. They just thought he was some tall guy. He came off the bench. So all of this kind of fame that's happened to him in New York is extremely sudden. I mean, he has not had any kind of practice for that. Everything that he's been trained for has been as far as as basketball, as relating to his teammates. That, that's a, that was a big point of emphasis for his family was to build kind of enough of an awareness of the American life, of American culture, even hip-hop culture, so that he could be comfortable in NBA locker rooms. And that's something that they were anticipating, you know, going back to when he was kind of a mid-teenager, I would say.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing point. And You were talking about the idea of how other people do kind of the other side of basketball well. And what I was thinking about when you were saying that is that this section is incredibly important, too. And with Porzingis, it might be one of the best examples in the whole time that I've written about draft prospects. Because if I had known all of these kind of nuances of his personality and his development, I would have been much higher on him because – what that does is it answers a lot of the things that are questions for most European players coming over. Yeah. Exactly. Dedication to the game, his ability to translate, his ability to connect with his teammates, and so would have turned those things which are potential pitfalls for any for any player who didn't play in the US. I mean whether that be even an American born player, sometimes they struggle with that if they've been overseas a little while. And it turned those into answers. And so for me it's a little bit frustrating that it didn't happen, but at the same point it helps, it helps show how special he is that he did that as a teenager, much less a guy who kind of, let's say, prepared for it as an adult.
2: No, and I think the best pieces about any of these guys, it combines everything. It combines the numbers, you know, video analysis, uh, you know, advanced stats, and then, sort of, more of a human side also. Because it, sometimes when I feel like we're writing these stories, it's like we're trying to answer some of the same questions that scouts and GMs are trying to answer. We want to know kind of what they do. And then you also want to know who they are. There's the craft, and there's the person. And one thing I found doing this job is that a lot of times they dovetail. A lot of times the way they play is sort of reflective of who they are. I always come back to this point, but you know, you look at the way Rondo plays. It's not that different from who Rondo is. Same thing with Westbrook, you know, for instance. Most players, Kobe for sure fits into that. Most players... I think that their style of play is kind of a lens into their personality. And so that's sort of a fun part of, to me, covering the NBA and writing about NBA players is figuring out how those things work, why that is. Like I'll take Harden, for example. I did a big one on James Harden last year, and I asked him, you know, what it is he loves about getting to the line, where the fascination with that began. And he said it was because he was lazy when he was little and his coach offered to buy him a burger if he got to the line six times in a game back when he was really young. He'd go go to In-N-Out for a free hamburger if he got to the line, I think it was six times. So he had these strong wrists and strong hands, so he developed, you know, that nuance that he has now where he'll put the ball out that drives everybody crazy, and he's able to hold on to it, you know, despite all the strip attempts. So I love stories like that that sort of illuminate – kind of the reason for why he does what he does, but also says something about his own personality in, in kind of a self-deprecating way. And with Porzingis, I think you're right. I mean, when I left that story, it made me frustrated a little bit at – because I think that we so much of it, the NBA and all sports, we operate – everybody operates in these kind of stereotypes. I remember I covered Jason Capono at UCLA, and when he came out of UCLA, he had this great line that became kind of famous. He said – If you added a VICH, a V-I-C-H to the end of my name, I would have been a first round pick if I was Kaponovic. But as it is, I'm a second rounder. And so everybody then wanted a European player. And then it kind of, because of Dirk or Powell, I guess, and then it kind of reversed where the European players were all seen as sort of, you know, they were seen as soft, they loved the game enough, toughness, all of those kinds of questions. And, you know, when you do a story like that, you just it's just a good reminder like this that you can't put them in these boxes. Everybody's different. And this guy, Porzingis' his background and the way he was kind of raised, and it it, remind, it reminded me more, to be honest, of writing about an NBA player who grew up in the inner city. I mean somebody whose dad was out of work, You know, had to get a job as a bus driver, waking up at 1 a.m. to do that morning shift. Basketball was seen as the way out. The brother was playing professionally in Europe and sending money home. They did not have a lot. I mean, basketball was lifeblood for that family. And so there was no such thing as the soft euro. I mean these were these were people who were attacking their dream because they really didn't have another choice.
1: Yeah, and I think that part of the reason that I love basketball is because the personality comes out on the court. It's a sport that is so collaborative. And what I what I think is interesting about it, and, and your pieces do a nice job of connecting this, is that there are two different things that that mesh together which is a player like the player's connection how their game shows on the court and then their personal connections off it and the team that's really galvanized that for me is the Warriors and I think the Warriors as a collective unit are the not the personification but they're another excellent example of what you were talking about how personality and skill set and attitude can can manifest themselves on the court
2: yeah I mean when it's. When you put it all together, what I usually do is write about one person. But when the five people are, in the worst case, more than five, when those can all kind of complement each other in some way, the skill sets, the personalities—I mean, that's where you have that magic, you know—that's happened in Golden State, where they're able to. It can seem almost telepathic. It can seem there's. You know, there's art, there's poetry to it. That's a lot of the appeal of watching the Warriors. But I think, you know, when you kind of get in there and you're with them the way you are, I've gotten to be in, in, in little spurts. You can see kind of the way they play off each other and, and the way those personalities complement each other. And You're right, it's not that different from the way they are on the floor. And, I, and I'm sure there have been times in sports, I mean, chemistry's weird. There are times when I think teams don't like each other, don't get along that well, and they're still able to hum... Um, when they're on the floor but you know definitely what you see more often is when you know the chemistry is sort of enhancing uh, is ha- enhancing the encore product and I think that's, that's what's going on with Golden State I mean could you have more than one Draymond green that might be t- that might be tricky but if you have one it's just right and I'm not talking about from a, what he does on the floor standpoint I'm saying it's good to have one personality like that it's good to have you know, if you have one guy who's quiet like Clay, I mean, it's 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 interpersonal dynamics, right? It's, it's it's like that with with every group of people. You know, when you're kind of all together all the time, working toward one goal, I think everybody kind of finds their role in a group, off the floor, on the floor, and sometimes they do mesh.
1: Yeah, and what makes this Warriors team different, I think, is that well, you're talking about with chemistry and how teams can overcome it. I, I completely agree. I think the Shaq-Kobe Lakers at the end are probably a good example of that, though they end up losing that last finals. But what to me, what chemistry breeds is longevity. And so you can stay together longer. And the, the analogy that's been used a few times, I think Bill Simmons used it once famously, is to me the Warriors are like, they're like a band that formed early in life. Like like U2, I think, is like this. The Beatles were like this until, you know, of course, they broke up. And the idea is that people generally, they got into personality fits and all of that that makes sense for staying together. And so, like, Draymond, his dominating personality, when he's not the best player on his team—of course, he's incredible, he's an all-star, might even be first-team All-NBA—that would be grading for certain teams who have an alpha dog who wants to be that guy— but right. it works with Stephen Curry because Curry is completely cool with him being the vocal leader of the team.
2: And one thing I was curious about, and you probably know better than I would, but like I'll ask GMs about how much of this is coincidence, you know, how much is happenstance? Because I don't believe they, you know, made those draft choices thinking about how a personality is going to interact with another personality. I mean, if they did, that's that's pretty amazing. But I think most of the time, NBA teams. They go for the talent and kind of hope it works out. And you have teams like the Rockets, where you can see this season. I mean, it doesn't really work out all the time. I mean, when you when you throw talent together, you have to kind of take into account some of these these other factors. Clippers may be another example. But I I am curious about that. About and I don't know if you have any insight to how the how the Warriors did and how much of that is just sheer luck or and this is where. The coaching becomes part of the equation, too. You know, I don't put as much stock maybe as other people in in the X's and O's of it, but I think that there is sort of an element of the culture and the atmosphere. And, you know, why did that group, while they were successful, why didn't they flourish anywhere resembling this way before as they did now? Is that all because of X's and O's or is part of it because – some kind of sort of hard to explain atmosphere was created where they could all kind of feel comfortable and and let those personalities go and flourish.
1: So the way I would phrase it is that for draft picks, I think talent overall won out. You know, I think they, they didn't draft Klay Thompson over everybody else because they thought he was going to be a good fit personality wise. I think they drafted him because he was the best player on their board. It would have right. been interesting if they take in Kawhi, but that's a separate question for a separate time. Draymond's the same thing. I, but personality can help that talent evaluation. I mean, Draymond's personability, his drive, is something that you can tell. I knew it the first time I ever talked with him. You know, you can see that with him and that changes the way you think about his potential as a player so it, it definitely does impact it i'd say the same with azili so you have that however i think with the veterans that they brought in that has been a consideration because yeah, consider it, right yeah so like Andre Iguodala was brought in a little bit later they drafted all those uh, they drafted the 2012 class is kind of the one that when you when you're kind of around this team they talk about a lot cuz that was barnes azili and draymond those guys had already been on the team for a year they made the playoffs that year beat the nuggets I think they part of the reason they really wanted Iguodala was because he fit well within that group. He was okay being, you know, kind of being a, a leader in a way, but not necessarily being the, the the guy. And I think that was a very important part of it. And with Bogut, I I don't know how much of it they saw, but I think that his ability to kind of be a leader and to be a kind of a voice of reason, if you want to call it that, was definitely something that they were aware of and, and knew about. And, like, for me, Bogut is actually a really good, uh, kind of a really good call sign for this because he was the first guy that I ever saw on the court call out David Lee for some of his lapses. And, you know, Lee had been an all-star for the Warriors, been an all-star for the Knicks, and he had, you know, he was a guy who who didn't necessarily bring it defensively every possession I'm being charitable. And Bogut was, had the credibility and the guts to say, you know, you should be doing better at this. And I think that all of all of us who, you know, played sports at any level, I mean, I never, I never played beyond high school, but you need to have those types of people to keep everybody in line because otherwise you're not going to reach your potential. And so Draymond, of course, has taken on some of that, Iguadal. And so they've been able to fill all of these niches with players who also never really had to deal with much losing since they've been here. And that's, I think, something that creates a lot of discord as well.
2: No, and I think that, that hits on a key point, which is that, you know, winning kind of creates these positive dynamics. If they were you know, if they had lost early or if they were losing, you know, you could look at all of these and, and you could kind of spin it a different way. For instance, like if Perzingis wasn't playing well, you know, you could make elements of his background, you could explain it away in a totally different way. You could look at it from another side. And so I think that a lot of times, you know, we look back and try to kind of explain we're looking back and trying to explain success, and, it, and it's easy. But how much of that success, kind of, how much is winning breed winning, in other words? How much does the chemistry result from success, or how much is the success the result of chemistry? And that's, you know, that's probably an impossible question to answer. But I, I do think that the teams that think about this stuff, that kind of consider it, I think they all do to some degree, but I think they're playing the percentages in a way that, that helps them a lot.
0: Yeah, and
1: I think the other thing that the Warriors, the real market inefficiency that they're capitalizing on, which is both a personality thing and a basketball thing, is intelligence un- and unselfishness in the way that, that these guys move the ball really well, not only because they think it's good basketball, but because they know it works. And mm-hmm. that is something that what a lot of great players don't necessarily do, either because they have a lot of faith in themselves or because they're not as good at that. And the Warriors through a lot of different means, and that's top to bottom. I mean, I, I I made this comment during the Spurs game that I was wondering how many of the guys that don't play point guard who are the 10 best passers that aren't point guards were in that game, and I think the answer was, in my mind, was probably around five or six, maybe, wow. maybe a little bit less, but you know, the idea is that there is an intense value to that. I mean, that's something that we're seeing around the league, especially when those guys play defense, which almost all of the, the guys on those two teams do. What the Warriors do is they have these supreme individual talents. I mean, you think about all the other stuff that works with the Warriors. If they replace Stephen Curry with Damian Lillard, I, I and I love Dame. They're gonna they're not gonna be nearly the same team. So they need every constituent piece to be what they are. But that's fine because they have every constituent piece.
2: Right. No, and I, you know you hear so much of the, the way they play was working perfectly as the NBA was changing. But I've wondered if part of the way the NBA changed is because of them, if, if they you know how much of the league was changing already based on D'Antoni and, and Phoenix and teams spreading the floor and how much now they've taken some of those changes to another level where, you know, those market inefficiencies I think now won't be market inefficiencies anymore. I mean, the, you know, teams that it seems like more and more, it's not just teams that shoot. It's, it is everything you've talked about. It's, you just, the ball movement, and, and I think it was happening earlier with the Spurs a couple of years before, um, but it does feel as though they've kind of taken some of those changes to another level.
1: They have, and also the part that makes the Warriors different and what's going to be so hard to replicate when teams try to do that inevitably is they're one of the best defensive teams in the league. They were the best last year, and the fact that you you don't have to make the hard choices that some teams have to do when you, when you value things like passing and and shooting and floor spacing, usually you're making a sacrifice on the other end. And, you know, to a point, sometimes the Warriors are. I mean, sometimes Andre Iguodala is going to have an amazing stretch of three-point shooting for whatever reason. But the challenge with it is that there are very few individuals you that you don't have to make those choices on and that also are willing to play a smaller part in a bigger machine and to sign on for that. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot with the Warriors, because there are lots of different ways to build teams, is... I think they benefited a lot in that way from a personality standpoint by drafting almost all of their key players because they developed a personal chemistry that I think facilitated this working without them really wanting more from it because they care about the guys that are there and they're succeeding, so there isn't really a reason to want anything more. What's it like to
2: cover it? I mean, there are so few situations in sports where there's really – you know, usually you have ups and downs. You know, it's kind of what makes I mean, sports is such a reality show. Every team is its own show. And in this case, it's, it's really not. It's just, it's just one, one long joyride. What's that like to cover?
1: It's surreal. It's even more surreal for me because I started covering the team. This is my seventh year. So my first year was Stephen Curry's first year and Don Nelson's last. And that team was bad. They were entertaining, but they were bad. And so I've been able to cover this team as they've gone from being bad and entertaining to being having potential to realizing every inch of that potential, and they're really when you when you talk to the guys, you know. So I've known you know known Curry his whole career, Draymond, like because as I said, they've maintained all these guys. So I've been covering them a large portion of their core, their entire career. Is they're not they're not different. They're just more famous now. You know, Draymond Green now. Is and from a personality standpoint, from talking to him, is the same guy he was. Stephen Curry, when his rookie year, he and I had, back when there were, like, no people covering this team, he and I would sometimes we'd be in the locker room and we'd talk about losing because I found that interesting. He talked about how frustrating it was. And the quote that always sticks out to me, I think I included this in the MVP piece I wrote, was that we talked, I think it was in March of his rookie year, about he mentioned to me just offhand we were talking about losing, and he said, I've lost more this season than... All of high school and college combined, and he was, and and it, he wasn't saying it in a way to complain or anything like that. He was just talking about how the length of the NBA season, coupled with being on a team, and how it can, you know, how it can be challenging and how it can, how it can hurt you. And he's like, "But I think we're going to get better," and all of that kind of stuff. And there's some great quotes and tweets about that, about his optimism and everything like that. But that's who Steph is. That's who he's always been. And to see him now be, you know, this phenomenon in a in a broader sense is pretty incredible.
2: Did you attribute? kind of the way this core has sort of, it was the same core that was, whatever, succeed in the West. Do you attribute that spike to just their time together, to their confidence, to the coaching? It, I mean, it's been just such an explosion. What what do you think is the main, the main reason?
1: Well, so the defense was there early on. Malone and Jackson deserve a lot of credit for that. But what I saw and why I was such a critic of Mark Jackson, well, pretty much the whole time, but especially late, was that, I saw a lot of offense, offensive potential that wasn't being realized. And Stefan Kerr, basically what Jackson did was he had a philosophy, which would work with a lot of teams, and defensively it was beautiful. I think it did a nice job of getting the guys to buy in. But that kind of concept of how an offense should run could work in a lot, for a lot of teams. But when you have something special you owe it to yourselves to try to do your best to maximize it, because that's the only way that a team can can ever really get close to even to winning a title, because they're always good teams. They're always going to be the Spurs and the Thunder and the Heat before the Heat broke up. And, you know, they're always going to be those teams. And Jackson, in my opinion, he didn't have that in him, and Kerr absolutely does. And so Kerr, and, and the the craziest part about this part of the Warriors is like I wrote a piece in the offseason talking about how like I thought they could be better, but I wasn't sure. You know, it was, it was ridiculous to say considering that season. And part of it was that you would hear all these stories about how they're like, oh yeah, we have so much more of the offense to implement, and you're just sitting there like, wait, what? And they still do. Like, you still hear that from the players. Like, we can do so much better than we're doing right now. And so I think that mentality of how do we get everything out of this group offensively, knowing how special it is, that's something that they needed to get to this level.
2: It's funny how much they talk about confidence. You know, there are a few teams that a lot of teams do that, a lot of players do that. um, But they just seem like such a confidence team. And I think that's the one thing they got from the title. I mean, I don't know if it was... I don't really think it was hunger. I don't think it was the perceived little slights over the offseason. I think when they are playing with confidence, they are just they're just impossible. And so you know, to me the only way anything could happen. and it's funny because so much of sports is like, I don't know if the dramas if we manufacture the drama in most cases, I think the drama is real. but it's like you don't want to just say, oh well, they this is inevitable. They're going to cruise to the title. they're not going to lose a playoff game, even though that's likely what will happen but it's like it's just kind of what would put all of us out of business to not have anything to talk about i feel like the only the only way that they get challenged is if somebody can somehow jeopardize that confidence because right now just nobody has obviously since last june
1: well the beauty of sports to me is that as much as we think we know things can always come out of nowhere and so I think that you're right that they're the odds on favorite, but at the same time you look at what Cleveland did in the finals before they corrected it, and you know, they mucked it up and they did the, they, they mucked it up and I think the Spurs at their best can do a lot of can do a lot of things to challenge the Warriors. But what I find absolutely astonishing about this team, and I think might actually be the most underreported part of it, and I blame myself partially for that, is this is a team that is deliberately holding back their best lineups to just being kind of like a spot thing because they don't feel like using it. And that's something, like you talk about, you know, this is a historic team, and and they are, but they're not playing Draymond at center more than like six minutes a game just because they don't want to put the wear and tear on it, and that is a lot, and they're still, I think they're 44-4 and right now.
2: Did they use that at all last year before the finals, or was that a finals invention?
1: It was very sporadic. They used it a little bit. So I think they, I, I could run, I, I don't have the numbers offhand. I think they ran it, you know, let's say, let's say I think it was under 100 minutes in the regular season. They did trot it out a little bit. Um, they used it actually pretty well in the Memphis series. Um, they eventually, once they realized that Harrison Barnes, one of the underrated facets of that series is Harrison Barnes did a really good job defending Memphis's bigs, Zebo and, and Gasol. They put him on Gasol for periods of time. They, I think once they kind of realized that and how they could, that how they how they could use that to again what I was saying before about not giving anything up, but that it, that it held defensively and then offensively it was just a wrecking ball because Zach Randolph will always at this point in his career he struggles a little bit with pick and rolls, so you could put those put Gasol into space and. I think that was the series that crystallized it because they didn't really need to do that against the Pelicans. The the Rockets series, they didn't use it a whole ton because it just didn't make a whole lot of sense because Dwight's Dwight and he played pretty well in that series. And so I think they knew they had it in their back pocket, but the fact that they actually not only used it, but the time that they used it the most in the finals was they started a game with it was incredible.
2: Right. So you think they knew all along that they had kind of this, this ace in the hole that they could draw on later in the season?
1: I don't think they knew it was an ace in the hole. They knew it was another option, and it became an ace in the hole once it actually worked. Right. And so, so yeah, I mean, th- that's also one of the huge credits for Steve Kerr is his willingness to try out different stuff. It's a, I think of it as a Popovich thing, but of course there are lots of other people who do it too. But the idea of you know let's 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 just see how it works. Let's see how let's see how things go. And the attitude of even in the Memphis series, they probably weren't sure that it was going to work, but just to try it. And it did because having smart players who are capable of figuring all of that out, not on the fly necessarily because they can practice it and they can do it, but in a different way, you know, like to do it without really having that foundation in games as, as solidly as some coaches would probably be comfortable with is a huge credit to everyone in the organization.
2: What do you think is the kind of team that would give them the most trouble? Or what, what do you see is, if there's any pitfall besides just an injury? Do you see anything?
1: It would have to be a team that moves the ball well. Because there are a couple big things. I'll, I'll say it more in terms of what the team, the, the team that beats the Warriors won't do. They won't turn the ball over. They won't make bad, miss, silly mistakes on defense. And they'll have a strong second unit. Because the Warriors, they're as, as good as their depth is. The starters play so much better together that you don't really want to separate them. And the second unit, is they're all good players, but I don't think there's a cohesive theory of the bench. It's just like, hey, let's have a good bunch of good basketball players. So that's why the Spurs make some sense, because the Spurs have a wonderful second unit. They pass the ball really well, except for the game they played against the Warriors. They generally don't turn the ball over very much. But what the Warriors do that's so challenging and will be so crazy in a seven-game series is they can put you out of your comfort zone the entire time because they can just throw lineups out there. And so like you're sitting there wondering, okay, well, the the moment that stood out to me was that they did it in a regular season game was in the in the Spurs game, they just decided, okay, every time Tony Parker's on the floor, we're gonna go after him. Wherever they put him. If he's on Harrison Barnes, Harrison Barnes is gonna post him up. If he's on Curry, Curry's gonna run all around the court, Clay the same thing. And so that kind of ruthlessness is exactly what a great team like this needs to to basically demoralize everybody. But at the same time, they're not unbeatable they just might be better they're definitely better than everybody who's out there right now
2: do you see any changes when walton left when kerr comes back is there are there any changes at all or is it does this just feel like it doesn't even really matter like that staff is just so cohesive that any one of them could be coaching the team
1: not much that's big. A few small things. I think the way Kerr manages the rotation, specifically foul trouble, is a little bit different. But that, of course, is that's a smaller thing. And also something that's important to note is that Kerr was very active in all of this, even though he wasn't on the sideline. So the real differences are not in overall philosophy, game planning, things like that. It's you know maybe a specific play choice, maybe out of an uh, out of an out of bounds or out of a timeout. Or the rotation, the stuff that you can't you can't do from the locker room, just because you have to be there to make those decisions. Those are a little bit different, but in terms of the feel of the team and everything else, it's basically the same.
2: You think Luke will get another job? Will get a job this summer
1: if he wants it? I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna be one of the, if not the most popular, one of the most popular coaching free agents out there. However. He would be very wise, in my opinion, to pick the right situation. And I, I'm not going to say what that is because it depends on what he values, whether he wants to you know, have the right ownership and GM. I think that's something that he, he'll he probably understand better now than he would have if he'd been an assistant somewhere else's. Bob Myers and Steve Kerr and Joe Lacob to a degree, they're all on the same page so well that it's so much easier in a way to be a coach because the way that I've described it, from what I understand of the way the front office works, is that Kerr is a valued voice in the room. Of course, it helps that he's a former GM. But him being a voice in the room and having level-headed people and a lot of talented people puts everybody in a, in a good position to succeed, whereas you can see it with other teams where if you're either not a voice in the room or somebody else is doing it, then that can be a challenge. You know, You can have the situation where... You know, let's say for me, the, the I've just because he just got fired. I was thinking about Hornacek and in Phoenix. That you know, all of a sudden after the trade deadline, the team he has is completely different than the team he had before, and they haven't played super well since then. And that that's the way it happens. So, with Walton, if he wants to if he wants to, to be a head coach, he should do that. And you know, th- there'll be good jobs that are offered, but. You always want. I think you want your first job to be the right job because otherwise, that'll that'll hang with you no matter what.
2: Would you have any sense of what his motivation is, if he, if that's kind of what something he's aspiring to do, or if he's kind of just happy doing what he's doing for the next couple of years?
1: I personally don't know him well enough. I think you probably you probably with the profile you did on him. I think you probably have a better idea of it. What I, my instinct, based on what I know about him is that it would take the right job. He, I don't think he's going to be a guy who says, I have to be a head coach this year. He, from his playing experience and from you know from his experience just in basketball, I think that the people who appreciate how special this team is will probably try to ride it as long as they can. And so I could see him doing that because those jobs are always going to be there for him. His reputation is not going to get tainted by being associated with this team. Yeah,
2: I mean it's just got to be an incredible experience. I don't really know how you... <laughs> I don't really know how you document it every day, how anybody documents it every day, because it's just sort of a straight line instead of kind of the zigzags that that most of us sort of, you know, that you kind of depend on for, for storylines. But there's definitely, there's just must be something special about getting to witness it. I mean, just, it's just so rare in sports to have this kind of, this kind of sustained excellence.
1: Yeah, it's definitely harder to write about in that sense. You know, it's something I've learned. I've talked about it with various people who cover this team and other teams, you know, that it can be easier to write about disappointment than it is about success. I mean, I had a lot to write about even in the Jackson years when they were doing well. I just thought of for me, I enjoy writing the this is good, but it could be better pieces. I wrote one about how the lineup that I thought the Warriors should use more a couple of years ago was the lineup with uh, Clay, Draymond, Iguodala, Bogut, and Curry, which I called the torture chamber, which was their best lineup before Draymond at center. So you, those kind of pieces I've always enjoyed. But as a kind of, if you want to call it as a basketball fan, just in that sense of somebody who enjoys good basketball, it's really insane to just be able to sit there and know that other than like maybe two games, this, uh, maybe like four now, you're going to see a team play really, really well. And that's crazy because basketball, it's an 82-game season. You don't expect that. That's not what happens. And its it's been a really remarkable thing. It's great. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about Russell Westbrook because he's a guy that, that I, I found fascinating. When you were starting to write about him, did you anticipate kind of going from the angle of where he started, or was that something that came across when you were talking with him?
2: I always get back to where they started, usually. I mean, Unless you have somebody who's just been written about so many times, or I've written about so many times. But Westbrook... You know, as as significant of a player in the NBA as he is, there haven't been too many um, kind of definitive stories about him. He's definitely kind of a puzzle and not the most accessible player, n- not close in the league. So, you know, I wanted to go back to where he started because I think a lot of times that informs, you know, who these people are. And I think he still sort of views himself as this, you know, kind of under recruited, undersized little ball of fire at losing her and I you know I think so much of sort of how these people kind of or how they view themselves how they play it starts early on so I went back to that but a lot of what I wanted to do with him was kind of process was how he sees the games kind of how he feels you know when he gets the ball because it looks as though he's kind of engulfed in a rage and I sort of wanted to get him to kind of talk about that was the best stuff I had in that story probably it was just kind of what he feels and what he sees and what he thinks when he's rushing along with the floor because that's really just a lot of times what I think of when I'm writing about a players sort or of what distinguishes them and to me the image kind of that lasting image of Westbrook what distinguishes him is is that moment kind of the kinetic energy of that of when he has the ball and he's just in a rush um, and that's got to be one of it's one of the coolest sights in all of sports when Russell Westbrook looks like he's Lost his mind and attacking the rim, and so I, as much as I can, kind of I could kind of get him to slow down and deconstruct those moments. That was kind of what I liked about the story. The stuff about his upbringing and everything, I like that to be in there because I think it explains some things. But in that case, it wasn't. I didn't think it was the most significant part of it.
1: So the the reason that I find the Westbrook so interesting and why I really liked your piece and went went there with the start is that. I was at UCLA when he was there, and I actually we we had some short conversations when we when he was a freshman and nobody really <laughs> very knew, short. I when, <laughs> when when somebody knew who he when no well so his his freshman year of college he was the low recruit on the totem pole. James Keefe right. was the guy who was he was the Warren one that, right. that everybody knew. He was this tall, affable white guy, and the white part actually does matter sometimes, sadly enough. And Russ was a little bit smaller. He, you know, he's was 6'2", I think, at that time. 6'2", 6'3". So, after, like, classes, he and Keefe were together. We had discussion sections right after one another. And, like, all these people would flock to James Keefe. And I have... I The first time I saw Russ was in a practice, I thought, this is the best player on the team. And that team had just made the Final Four. Like, I saw something in him. And so, I just, as a guy who thought he was going to be a special basketball player, I would just go up and talk to him. And he was so enthused that somebody somebody wanted to talk to him. Because he had been, and that's why I thought the under-recruited part is a part that I've always found so interesting about him, is that there are very few elite players in the league who ever really went through that duckling, the ugly duckling phase, at a level, at a rel- relative level. And I think you see that in Russell Westbrook. My operating theory with him, which I think you got at in the piece, and a little bit he talks about it this way, is my theory with Russell Westbrook is that he's like a, a person who got superpowers Kind of a little bit later, and had and and is just embracing it for as long as they have it.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think his greatest superpower. I mean, look, he's got incredible obviously athleticism, and but I think that there's that there is a ball of fire inside of him that maybe because he didn't have those superpowers, or you know, he did feel like he was getting short shrift or something like that. I mean, the game that when you talk about that freshman season, the game I recall was a game against. It was at West Virginia. Um, I don't know if Collison was hurt. But he started in that game or played heavy minutes, and it was a disaster. I mean, he had a ton of turnovers in the game, made a lot of mistakes. And that was the game when, you know, I think you could see some of that potential, but you could also sort of, you know, just see him kind of go completely awry. And, you know, I remember talking to him that season, too. I talked to him once, and I felt like he was very much of who he is now. It was a short conversation. It was a difficult conversation. He was kind of... He was the kind of person who would challenge you, and, and you know that's sort of in him. I mean, there's a—he's very combative, and I think that's part of what makes him great. You know, that sort of competitive streak. There's just a competitiveness to him that is that is pretty unusual, and I think has fed a lot of his rise. Um, and even at that at UCLA, I and mean, you think about how many great players were on that team. They didn't start him a point guard against Derrick Rose. I mean, if, if they'd put him at point guard in the Final Four they might have won the national championship. I mean, Memphis destroyed him in that game. But I don't really think UCLA, as much as they loved him, as much as Kerry Keating loved him, I don't even know that they totally knew exactly what they had until it was too late. And and they really did like him a lot. I mean, nobody was really offering him. I mean, I think it was Creighton and San Diego State were in on him. Wyoming. Um, UCLA made him wait. They made him wait until the spring. To, I think it was a Aflalo. They wanted to make sure a Aflalo was going pro. To follow a follower farmer. I could be mistaken, but one of those guys had to go pro for Westbrook to even get his scholarship to UCLA, and he really wanted to go to UCLA, so he was willing to to wait it out. But that's unusual. I mean, there are very few guys who are NBA stars who had to have that kind of uncertainty. Like, hey, we want you, but you have to wait till the spring for your scholarship. And I don't really know that that kind of lit a fire into him, under him, or you know, a bitterness. Because I sort of went there in the interview, and he kind of rejected that. I think it was there to begin with. I just think that's kind of the way this guy's wired because everybody, you know, everybody I talked to who knew him when he was young, they all have kind of a similar description. It was like, who's that little kid running around looking like his head's cut off? And they always called him a maniac. and They always called him crazy. That's just the way he's always played. And then when those, you call them superpowers, when those kind of gifts all kicked in physically, they combine with whatever that is internally that fuels him to create a pretty unstoppable package.
1: Yeah, the parallel I would use is it's kind of like what happened to what happened to Anthony Davis in a different way. So Anthony Davis was a talented small who then was able to transition into being a big, and I think what Russ had was he had the drive that you have to have to be a really small guy to try to succeed, but you just when you're 5'10 or five ten or whatever he was when he was like a sophomore and junior in high school, it's just hard to make it to that level. And then all of a sudden he got the thing that he got the thing that he needed to make him special. And I think the drive and all of that was already there. And it's really fortunate to see somebody really get to that jump because not only did he get there, but then this is a guy who has the physical ability to win dunk contests and things like that. Like he went from being a guy who I think the timeline from when he never dunked to when he competed in the dunk contest was like three and a half years.
2: <laughs> That's funny.
1: And and so I think he it's it's an unusual path and yeah, like like you said, I think those are always the ones that are really interesting. For what you've done, have you noticed any difference between because you were, of course, writing about teams in, before the, like, in the one-and-done guys versus kind of the people who've gone different paths.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's always a difference. Like, when you talk to somebody, like, you mentioned Davis. Like, to me, with Davis, I got him last year when he was, you know, he was really blowing up, and everybody at that point, you know, was anointing him as kind of the next you know, the next NBA superstar, which he still is, but it was, you know, these guys will go through kind of where they have, where it feels like they're having a moment. And it was, there was definitely an Anthony Davis moment kind of early last season. And we talked a lot about the struggle to kind of still see yourself as he was in 10th grade when no one cared about him and, you know, nobody, nobody watched him and nobody thought much of him because it does, it happens quickly. You know, for a guy like Davis, it was one day. There was one day there was a guy who came and he you know, shot some video of an AAU game and uploaded it and called a few coaches he knew, kind of a Chicago grassroots scout, and all of a sudden spread like wildfire, and Anthony Davis was the hot thing based on that growth spurt. It all happened really quickly. So I do think it's interesting when you get somebody early in their career to kind of talk about how they react to that sudden bolt of fame, you know, where their life has completely changed. They've scratched this lottery ticket and it's just been three years. Everything's different. But to be honest, I'm, I prefer to catch guys when they're kind of in their mid to late twenties and they're able to sort of reflect on all of it a little better. Like one of my favorite interviews I ever did was with Tyson Chandler, who he was not a late bloomer. (laughs) He was an early bloomer, right? Like 14, everybody knew this guy was going to be incredible. And, his high school games in LA, Tonto Dominguez were shows. And, you know, there was a lot of, he was kind of, all, every kind of dirty grassroots basketball element sort of ensnared him or tried to ensnare him when he was young. And, and when I got to talk to him, he was really able to talk about all that and reflect on all of it and kind of his place as sort of a pawn in that system and understood it better. So a lot of these players, I think, especially the highly touted ones, they're in this sort of tunnel. And they're just kind of going from the gym to the hotel, back to the gym, back to the hotel. And then at some point, they kind of come out of that tunnel and and look back on the whole ride. And that's when it's really fun to talk to them.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially with somebody like Chandler, who hit the surreal part so early that you, you, you have to get some time away from it to really get that. And even though he's, you know, still his life went from that to being a young NBA player to being a champion and everything else, time still can't help give you perspective on that.
2: Yeah, and that's why, like, that's why to me, LeBron's the best, because Kobe is great. Talking to those guys, they are able now to kind of talk about the whole journey and, like, put it into some perspective and, like, you know, I mean, LeBron's had this kind of life as a star of the Truman Show for so long, and he now, he now kind of can look at it outside of himself and get it and put it in some perspective. And that's why those conversations are interesting, because they're, they're talking about sports, sure, but they're also talking about just life in the American celebrity machine and the how bizarre it all is. And I mean, it's just it's such a fun house that they operate in. And when you're kind of put into that, when you're 16, 17, kid with nothing, you know, kind of growing up apartment to apartment, and and all of a sudden you're in it. How you handle it, how you navigate it, the mistakes you make, the successes you have, all of it. It just makes for such a rich, interesting life, and when they're able to kind of internalize that and discuss it, I just think it makes for fun stories to tell. Kobe's is different, obviously, than that, but, but similar. When you sit down and talk with them, there's just there are just so many stories to tell because it's all been it's all been so interesting. There's so many ups, there's so many downs, so many errors made, you know, so many great things have happened. Um, that it, when they can put it all in perspective, it just it makes for incredible material. I think.
1: Agreed. And what's remarkable about those two? I like that you grouped them because I think this is something that they possess that very few other people do, which is that they are aware of not only their legacy in the and the active and the future way, but they are uh, very aware. Kobe might be the poster child for this moving forward of how they can shape it themselves in the present. And you you talk about Kobe and how you know they they have an, They know that everything they say is going to be perceived and everything and and that's not to say that they're being dishonest they aren't they're being honest but they have an awareness of where they are in this in this universe which is something that very few of us ever even get to touch much less experience that is pretty remarkable
2: yeah it is and i think there's a good question to be had about authenticity in that regard because i think when you are aware of that you can't help but sort of be I think all, I think everybody's acting to some degree, you know, you put cameras in front of everybody's faces and microphones. I think there's always going to be an element uh, of an act. And I think, I kind of think there has to be, I think any of us would, would do that. And I think that that awareness, you know, I think they can kind of become probably kind of trapped in this weird reality also where it's like, are you playing a role? Are you being yourself? Are you kind of being halfway between the role and yourself? Um, And I, I think that that is part of this too. I think that's interesting also. When I'm talking to these guys, I'm trying to get them a little bit away from the act, but then I see them with their guys, with their boys, and I'm clearly not getting that either. You know, I'm not getting kind of the unvarnished person either. And if it was that, you know, there'd be some uproar from everybody if they were really being truly unvarnished. So it's, it's a hard line to walk, but I do think you're right that like where they fit in this whole this whole construct, sports and celebrity. Um, and how those two manage it and, and, while also keeping their eye on the prize, which is their performance and and success, knowing that you know especially for LeBron, like the stakes are um, the stakes, the pressure. it's just so it's so unusual. I don't know that anybody else really can can relate to that. I don't know, just to me, it makes it's like we're in the business of telling I'm in the business of like telling stories, of creating you know people who have these arcs, these ups and downs. I mean to me, those always make the best stories because you know you have these you have these obstacles in front of you. The best stories you have a character who has sort of a personality and is somebody, you know, who's some in some way relatable, even if their body may not be relatable, and they are faced with obstacles, whether by someone else's doing or their own, you know, and how they kind of handle it, how they navigate it. And with people like that, with Kobe, LeBron, and some of these real NBA characters, it's constant. It never stops changing. I mean, LeBron's story never stops changing. And that to me is why it's a great story. That's why I, I write about him, I them a lot and I them a lot because it it, just, it it never stays the same. And that's part of why, to me, like the NBA, we talk about Kobe and LeBron. They've kept that machine churning. You know, they make it so that the Spurs, they don't have to say much. They don't have to do much. It's like they, they can kind of exist in their sort of, in their kind of paradise. The Warriors now also because I think those guys keep that machine churning and, and it, it needs to be fed sort of that you know kind of that NBA that NBA cycle and there are a few players a few megastars who keep it who keep it running.
1: The NBA I've criticized it in in other years for you know for focusing more on the stars instead of the teams but I think that they're getting better now at understanding that you can market those two things both but just do it separately right. and do it in kind of different ways. But you were talking about LeBron and his arc and what I've been thinking about the last little bit is How important the 2010 2011 season was in terms of making him identifiable because he is somebody who, like, especially I think for people who've seen him in person, like, he's so far beyond what most people are. You know, he's this guy who's 6'9, he's built like a Mack truck, but he's still the fastest guy in the league. But to see him struggle with identity, struggle with where to kind of fit his personality in. I think I I think it was your sportsman. Was it Sportsman of the Year profile in 2012 that I think really hit on that? Was the idea of that that kind of the pitfall, I guess you could call it, that that was really I think helped change change his identity with the general public.
2: Yeah, and I mean there was real vulnerability there. I think when you have somebody who looks like that and is blessed like that, when you sort of, I mean I don't know that anybody. People, I think a lot of people held it against him, that vulnerability. But to me, I agree. I think it did make him identifiable, and it made him relatable because you could see the backlash, everything after the decision, the scrutiny, you could see somebody internalizing it and that he was not insulated from it. And that's where he and Kobe may be a little different. I mean, Kobe might be able to just kind of swallow that and sort of embrace it, but I don't think he did. I don't think LeBron did like that, and I know he didn't like that year. Um, and kind of tried to find different roles to, to deal with it and couldn't and struggled and, you know, and did fall short and did look like at some points that, you know, he could feel pressure. And I think when you saw that sort of – those kind of vulnerabilities, especially, you know, in the finals against Dallas, I agree. I think it, it created kind of a launching pad for his story in some way. I mean, as a prodigy who had been kind of taken to back down to earth um, and had to build himself back up again. Yeah. And obviously he had the, the, the gifts to do it. But that summer after Dallas, there's no doubt that that was probably the most important. I mean, I think he would agree with this that that would have been the most important stretch of his career.
1: Yeah, and you think about even if the only thing that was different from that year was that they, let's say they win, they win the series four to two or four to three, and everything else is the same. All of the not two, not three, all that kind of, all that kind right. of stuff. I think that just losing in the finals and looking like a mortal for the first time in a long time, I think even that, and I think that's what fueled that summer too was, you know, as much as everything else was big, it's kind of amazing that sometimes if in a sport that is, whether fairly or not, is often defined by championships, that really that helped crystallize it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was, he was a lot of discovery that summer. And, you know, for the first, he lost before, obviously he never won a championship, but he lost and he was ridiculed. And he was despised. I mean, it was a, you know, he occupied kind of that lowest terrain that a sports star can. I think it emboldened him in some ways because he knew going forward that he could do it, that he could come back from that. But I also think it kind of it forced him to take a really hard look in the mirror that he maybe hadn't been forced to take forever. And I think it reinvented part. He reinvented parts of his game. I think he reinvented a little bit of who he was. Um, although I don't like to exaggerate that stuff too much. Um, but I definitely think it's set the stage for the next two championships. But even now, it's like it just it just never stays the same. And and that's why it's it's interesting with the Warriors where um, it does feel it does feel sort of static. The Spurs are like that also, and that's great too. It, it's it's different. It's just interesting how there are some teams and players where these swings are so wild, you know, like the Kobe and LeBron types, you know, you have these kind of cults of personality. And then you have places like Golden State and San Antonio where they're able to operate, you know, more consistently. They don't kind of have that. It feels like that media crush or media scrutiny. And maybe that'll come at some point. Obviously, when you're winning, there is none of that. Oklahoma City kind of falls in between, probably. They're probably verge more on the other side. I find it interesting how the league kind of has two different sets of
1: of teams. Yeah, you you talked about the idea of insulation, and I think one of the other attributes of this Warriors team that's really fascinating to me for people who kind of group them a little bit with the Spurs is that a huge difference is that this team has rabbit ears about what people say about them. And they have a group text where, you know, people, of course, they do other things, too. But, you know, it, it definitely seems like things that are critical about them, whether it be the the whole Twitter thing that blew up or various other things, that they're aware of that. And in for certain groups of people, that would be a negative. But this group has turned that into motivation and turned it into a positive, which is fascinating considering how little criticism of them exists. Yeah.
2: And I think so. I mean, I think so many athletes do that. Right. It's just it's all kind of. Manufactured, they, they'll find it seems like disrespect pretty much anywhere. What I what I think is interesting is the Warriors don't seem to it doesn't seem to really be their sensibility. I mean, they, they seem to just kind of enjoy playing and enjoy the competition. I don't know how much they even need all of that all of that fake stuff. You know, they don't really talk that much. You know, the the verbiage that kind of consumes everybody else, like you know, hunger and the fight and you know, comparing games to battles. The Warriors don't seem to do that so much, but they do That that is one thing they do is uh, is, you know, taking seemingly innocuous comments in my opinion and sort of you know, exaggerating the effect for the sake of motivation or exaggerating the comment that was made. And and you're right, it but I think I think that's pretty commonplace among all athletes. There are many slights, there aren't many things anybody's saying about the Warriors or Steph Curry. So they're having to look pretty hard and you know, when they find one, they'll be able to, I, I suppose, to use it for motivation. I, I don't know. You've got to find motivation somewhere when you're 44 and 4, I suppose.
1: Yeah, they, they, you do have to find it somewhere. And, I mean, the one that they got the most from, and I don't hear much about it anymore, but the whole lucky angle that was on them toward, you know, at the end of last year, that really did. Yeah, but he didn't call them
2: lucky. You said you need luck to win a championship, but right? but
1: I think it was it wasn't just doc it was everybody you know it was it was there was a media narrative was the idea of like oh well they ne- they didn't get anybody's best shot, and I think you know and to a point that is true you know they, they they that was good fortune, but that's what you get when you're the number one seed and you know they made a lot of their they made a lot of it, but I'm not saying that you know that it was, that I think they did take some of it a little bit too far but and that's a part of motivation too, but at the same time. I also think that beyond that, the reason that it, I think, helped motivate them was that it did underlie a a real truth, which was that they thought they could be more dominant than they were. And so what it kind of did was it gave voice to something that was there, and it's easier then to point to that than to a more abstract concept.
2: I think you're right. I think that's a good point, because even in the finals, the coaches told me they'd be looking at stuff and thinking they'd be on the plane and saying, we're going to be so much better next year. And I think they knew that the way this offense goes and the familiarity they'd have with it, I think the confidence from the title really can't be underestimated. I think that that just gave them this extra boost. I mean, there's no other explanation to how – I mean, Curry was incredible last year, but to be even better this year, I just feel like the confidence from that title has to have done wonders for all of them.
1: And to be even better despite the demands that he had this summer in terms of publicity and everything else is really kind of to me says a lot about his dedication to the game and everything because you think about he won the mvp he could probably should have won finals mvp and had all this you know went to asia had all this personality you know he's doing all the all the late night shows and all that and still gets better is remarkable to me I'll, i'll let you go on this what teams and players are you enjoying watching the most this year just as a fan
2: well, it's a weird year because it feels like nobody really counts outside of the two you cover. Um, but no, I think I, I'm, I'm still interested in the Thunder. I'm interested in the Cavs. I feel like those are two teams that, you know, potentially have a higher ceiling that they haven't reached yet. So, I mean, you're just wondering if anybody can emerge as a contender outside of the two, outside of Golden State and San Antonio. And I still feel like those ones may have a little bit farther to go. You know, if, if Oklahoma City can kind of work out its rotation, if the if the defense can improve, uh, if they get more used to Donovan's system as they go, you know, I've, I always just feel like they're wildly fascinating because they do have so much talent. And, and the specter of Durant, I mean, that storyline really hasn't dominated the NBA the way I think a lot of people thought it would this year, but it's hanging out there is what happened to that team's second round second-round exit again. You know, them and Cleveland are probably the two most interesting to me. I mean, Cleveland's Cleveland's just fascinating because you don't know how much time they're going to have that this iteration is going to have, and it feel there's a desperate feel to it, an urgent feel to it that I think they are looking so keenly at the Warriors. They're, they fall, I think they follow them so closely, and you know, I don't know if it's to their detriment or to their benefit, but I think that they are, you know, they are really grinding to try to to try to get close to that level because I think there's an anticipation that, that a rematch maybe in the cards. And from right now where you sit, it wouldn't look like much of a matchup maybe, but we're not at the end
1: yet. Yeah, we'll have to see where those teams can get. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and keep up the great work.
2: Okay, thanks, Danny. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much to Lee Jenkins for coming on. You can, and I would say must, read him at Sports Illustrated, also SI.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at S.I. Lee Jenkins, and that is S-I underscore L-E-E-J-E-N-K-I-N-S. He's a great follow on Twitter. He is an unbelievable writer, and something that cracked me up as I was editing this was that about an hour after we recorded, but before this is being released, Yahoo!, Put out the report that about the possibility of Kevin Durant going to the Warriors, and I thought it was funny because we talked about how it had been a back burner story, and that might be changing in the near future. As some of you, maybe many of you, know, I have been on that possibility for a long time, both at Warriors World and with the sporting news, and I'm sure that opportunity, the opportunity to discuss that, will come up in the coming days, probably on Dunked On. So, uh, as I said before, read Lee Jenkins, and I would go back, if you're less familiar with his work, I would go back and try to find things, especially on, on people that you're interested before. His heart, The hardened story tells in this is incredible. His Some of his best work is LeBron. I was talking with somebody recently, and I, I, I personally feel that Lee has written at least the three best pieces, interviews and pieces that have been written about LeBron James in his professional career, which is incredible. Uh, one of them was his the Sportsman of the Year, I believe that was in 2012, which I brought up. And I love that he can bring that out of athletes. His Porzingis piece, which came out about a week ago, is incredible. It provides the backstory for how he, you know, how he approached basketball, why his motivations and everything like that. And I think gives part of the, it fleshes out why he's doing so well early. And as we talked about in it, if I had known all of that beforehand, I I probably would have thought more highly of him because it, it increased the chances of his success and Lee is a master at finding those and talking about the right people. And I loved talking early on about his process because that's just something that I find fascinating. So thank you so much to Lee for coming on. Your input is always greatly appreciated. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, Danny LaRue, NBA at com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. If you like this podcast or the Dunked On Basketball podcast, please subscribe, and uh, it's great uh, if you download every episode, and just it, it helps our ratings, and we really do appreciate it. Also, it is great if you can leave an iTunes review. We don't know exactly how the rankings work on iTunes because they keep it a black box, but something we know matters is the number of reviews and the positivity of them, so if you really like it, that is much appreciated. And, you know, it, it's been a really amazing process that just for me, the ability to reach out to Lee Jenkins and have him say yes and then record just a couple of days later was thrilling. I, I honestly could barely sleep last night. I was really, really excited about it. So I will continue this as long as I can. Of course, I love doing Dunked On as well. And we're going to have some really fun developments on that side in the next week as well. So we're working on some, some legitimately cool stuff. and. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for reading. Oh, I never mentioned this. I don't mention it enough. I have a Facebook page, too, which is also Danny LaRue MBA, and I try to put up everything that I do, pieces, podcasts, all that kind of stuff, ideally as soon as it gets published. So it's kind of a nice way to do that. And then I have a mailing list, which goes out once a week, which is not only my own stuff, but also recommendations. And I, I want to get into a little bit more of that kind of thing, because I really do care about that. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: The Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know how.
2: Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts.
1: Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all
0: of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.